You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. This week, Oliver and Ashley go inside the huddle with the queen of the queen of the night, Catherine Lewick. The American soprano is about to embark on a six-city season, which includes a stop in Chicago to sing in the Count Ori with friend of the show and rival of our fantasy football team, Larry Brownlee. Plus, in the two-minute drill... Maria Minetti Schrem general manager Peter Gelb is left on red <laughs> by Christian Tielemann and fantastic news from Deanna Damrau. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher, and yes, Spotify. Click follow, Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign. And of course, send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes. Either way, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Get your voice heard. Get the OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Oliver Camacho, back in business. Yeah, I don't have a lot of sports news. And I know that there's like a lot of uh, end of season uh, Masters events or ATP events just to get a couple more points before the end of the year. But for all intents and purposes... The tennis season is over and the opera season has begun. <laughs> Matt Cummings, <laughs> the Stillers are one and four right they are, now. They are having a rough year this year. It's true. The Stillers? Like Ben Stiller? That's no. correct. Yes. <laughs> ben and Jerry Stiller are fine. Everyone calm down. <laughs> NMAR also doing fine. Uh, no, the Pittsburgh Steelers are in a bit of a garuff patch, as they say, in Germany, I assume. Weston Williams, also the tie dropped to number three in the Associated Press poll. Looks like they might just have to roll a little harder, George. The NHL kicks off this week. It really is the happiest time of the year. There is nothing like hockey season getting going. I'm really? excited I hope you're excited. I mean, there's definitionally nothing like it because <laughs> it is the only start of hockey season. <laughs> Go away, Cummings. Go away. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So we have a deluxe length interview with the great Catherine Lewick. And I will give an introduction uh, after we hear just a little bit of the role that Catherine Lewick is known for. The Queen of the Night. This is from a recent performance at Aix-en-Provence. So if you have heard the Queen of the Night and the Magic Flute in the past couple of years, uh, you probably have heard our guest today, Catherine Lewick. That was from Aix-en-Provence in 2014. And she doesn't just sing the F. She sort of like 
you know, has like a little coffee break <laughs> there. And <laughs> it's insane. Um, I heard Catherine sing Queen of the Night in Chicago. I forget when it was 2018 or something, 2017, 2017. And I, uh, I was like, no way. I've never heard this sung this well and this confidently. And then you backed it up with a uh, Mozart mass in C minor with music of the broke. And, you know, I was expecting, well, they got an opera singer to sing this thing. It's like, okay, let's see how she does, you know? And it was poised. It was elegant. It had chest voice, well mixed. It was so in tune and it was phrased like, holy F, this is an incredible singer. So with that, uh, welcome to Opera Box Score. Such a huge fan. And it's not the first time that your name has come up on this show and we'll talk about why, but uh, at any rate, welcome. Thank you guys. <laughs> you make me feel so good about myself right off the bat. <laughs> so do you want to just like talk a little bit about Queen of the Night and what it what that role it has been for you and um, are you ready to uh, you know, move on or are you still gonna keep it in the repertoire? Oh my gosh, you're gonna frighten people. Um, <laughs> it is October, yeah, I mean, it's spooky season. <laughs> I know, right? It's Halloween. Um, yeah, I mean, Queen has been kind of a really fun uh, vehicle for me for a number of reasons. I mean, I'm, I'm a really kind of dramatic person anyway, so uh, it's cathartic in that way um, to sing sort of the, the Disney villainess. Although, I mean, the wonderful thing about Queen is that uh, over the however many productions I've done and, and like, you know, my agent tells me I've sung like over 300 performances. I don't know if I believe her or not, but it is something <laughs> it is something like that. Um, and uh, it's actually for it only being like a 12 minute role. It's always kind of crazy to me. Um, how different it can feel yeah. um, from production to production. So it, I don't, I can't, I can't really say that I have tired of it because um, I also feel like it's just been such an opportunity uh, that it, it has brought me all over the world to so many different houses and introduced me to so many different people and um, I've made so many friends while singing the production. So I'm, I'm not necessarily like tired of Queen, but I'm really, uh, I really also owe that I think to my agent, who's also a really wonderful friend of mine, Vanessa Ezan. Um, you know, because from the very beginning, when we were first working together, which was, oh my gosh, over 10 years ago, um, I was like, I don't always want to sing Queen of the Night. And she's like, I don't want you to always sing Queen of the Night. You're you're such a flexible artist and you have so much to give. And she saw that about me from the very beginning. And because of that, our partnership has always had this flavor of, okay, well, what are the couple of queens that I'm going to take this season? And what else are we going to put in there? Um, what other opportunities do we have to, you know, have things in between queens that, are, you know, also really fulfill me as an artist? Um, so, you know, I think that if I had been singing only Queen for the last 10 years, which I'm sure a lot of people out there feel like I have only been singing <laughs> Queen, um, but that really is not the case. I've, I've done so many other interesting things. Um, and so, and so I, I haven't really totally tired of it, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I feel like I'm kind of mentally coming to that point where there is no official plan to give up Queen in the near future. 
but um, just the other things that I'm starting to be offered are much more exciting to me. I just accepted my first Alcina, which I'm oh, wow. super, super excited about. Um, you know, in this season, I'm doing the four heroines from Hoffman. And oh, man. I'm doing in Chicago, and I'm singing a, a Lucia in Nice. Um, so just I'm getting sort of, and, and there's some more Violetas on the, on the horizon. So those things just kind of feel like I'm, I'm graduating into a part of my career where I can pick and choose a little bit more. And it's just a little more appetizing to me to do lots of different things and, and some more roles that have a lot more meat in them. There is something about Mozart singing where a lot of people get in their heads and they think, oh, I have to be, you know, rhythmically perfect. I have to have, uh, you know, this instrumental quality to the voice. It's got to be articulated, clean uh, intonation, obviously. And that seems to be like naturally what you do. So if you are graduating to, for less, lack of a better word, more romantic repertoire, um, does that mean that you're allowing the voice to take up more fluff, you know, to take up more warmth. Be messy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. My or, that, or, you, or you've been holding back when you're singing Mozart. <laughs> um, I, no, I don't think that I necessarily hold back. I just, I, I was a pianist and an instrumentalist first. I was an oboe player. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that, my sensibilities of being part of the fabric of the music are so ingrained in me and uh so when i'm singing handel like I, i'm just very much devoted to that style when i'm singing mozart i'm very much devoted to my boyfriend mozart um <laughs> but you know i just feel like as a singer i i am an open relationship kind of person and <laughs> i feel like there's room for everyone <laughs> yes ethical repertoire non-monogamy yeah yeah we right. stand we exactly. stand exactly like I'm, I, I'm monogamous with my husband, but that's, that's it. As far as composers go, I play the field. That's awesome. Um, one of the things that I couldn't help but notice when we, um, when we look at this sort of career of Weston, don't edit this out, bad theory, um, is that there is sort of this recurring, recurring theme of saying no in a positive way for advocation for you and your career. You know, one of the first times I noticed it is when, you know, you're you're auditioning for the Opera Foundation and they ask you to sing Queen of the Night and they and you directly said that's not on my rep list. That's and so you just flat out said no and and not a lot of singers maybe would have felt so emboldened as to say that. Uh you know, you just talked about how you and your agent said no to you doing Queen all of the time. You're like, "No, I don't want to just be known for the Queen. I want to do all these other things." Even when we get to when you are pregnant and you're supposed to be singing Kunigunda and the the director was like, "You know what? No. Uh we're not going to have a pregnant lady running around on platforms. We want to protect you. We want to advocate for you." And then of course, the thing that I have barked about no less than four times on the show previously is how <laughs> when Develt went ahead and put their head right up their hindquarters and spoke about your appearance as opposed to your actual performance uh, in the Develt magazine, you were the first one to say, no, this is, this is unacceptable. This is not, this is not okay behavior. And I think it's so interesting that the art of saying no is something that has been really empowering and, and, and advocating for you. So, I mean, when, when I say something like that, when I'm like saying no, seems like a really cool thing for you. Like, What's your, What's your response when you hear that? 
Uh, my my response is uh, thank you. I love hearing that about myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I guess I, I've always been really a strong-minded person. I was really a very willful child. And uh, as my mom, uh, you know, very often says, my brother was a little easier to raise than you were, but mm-hmm. you were the spice of my life. Um, and, you know, I guess it's, it's uh, not something that I necessarily try to be or try to do. It's just who I am. And it's like, take it or leave it. Um, I definitely, uh, you know, also try to be, a an easy person to work with and I'm not just gonna you know sit here and and think only of myself and what's good for me and stuff but um but I I do definitely find it impossible to let people walk all over me and I find it impossible to do something that I don't feel is right for my career or right for my personal life um and I guess there's just this uh, this force inside of me that uh, makes it, for better or for worse, because sometimes I really struggle with these feelings. It's not necessarily easy for me to say no, but I find it impossible not to when it doesn't feel right. Yeah, no, this uh, this makes a lot of sense. And speaking of people that uh, might potentially walk all over you, you've got two little ones in your house that you have to do a a, a daily exercise of of straddling that line. So you know, when, when we think about sort of what your, your parenting style is, or, you know, folks don't have to have a parenting style, but when you think (laughs) about how, how that advocacy for you works and then how it transitions to how it is that, that you and your partner are raising your children, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. And we assume you're monogamous with your children. So (laughs) yes, yes. I I only have one. You're not parenting other children. As far as we know. (laughs) I'm not raising other people's kids. Um, no, yeah, I mean, two is enough, and it's it's hard, and it's messy, and that that's, uh, you know, when you were talking about the way that I sing Mozart, I, I kind of love the cleanliness of it, although kind of my greatest joy is to get it a little bit dirty, um, which feels very Mozartian to me, like, I can only imagine that he was a little bit um, raunchy in real life, not a little bit, like, probably a lot, mm. um, and so he's this sort of, like, brilliant, perfect genius who is so rough around the edges. Um, and I loved to kind of bring that to my portrayal of Mozart and to Queen. Um, but back to the uh, the family thing. Yeah, we, we don't have a parenting style, although we did read this fantastic book called Bringing Up Bebe, which um, it's, you know, it's this woman who wrote this book about raising, uh, she's, she's American, she uh, raised her kids in France she married a British guy so it's like this sort of like uh beautiful um family of uh you know different circumstances all kind of being thrown together and uh they raised their kids outside of Paris and um they're like the way that she talks about raising her kids she says it's a very like French thing. Like there is no style. It just is the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the idea that, that you're really a team as a family. And that's really how Zach and I have approached parenting. And, and it will become more and more a way that we approach parenting now that, um, like, especially our, our daughter, who's going to be four in October, uh, at the end, but just a couple of weeks. Oh my gosh. Um, and, and 
you know, thinking about how do we work together? Because we, we're not just like living under the same roof. We also have to do these insane things like in four days, we're leaving for five months on the road. And um, we have to work together. We have to be a team um, or else traveling and, and moving from Airbnb to Airbnb, to Verbo, to rented apartment, to whatever, like all of these different flights and everything, it's never gonna work if we can't all be on the same page. Um, and so figuring out like, how, how, do we, how do we even like present this to our kids? Um, because it's just such a, a unique lifestyle comparatively. We want to stay on the topic of parenting for just a moment. And uh, Ashley has her standard template of questions that she asks <laughs> mother singers. <laughs> well, we we like to bring these topics into conversation because I don't think anybody talks about them enough. And there are lots of people that are navigating this career and all of the changes that happen emotionally, spiritually, physiologically as, as your body goes to make another whole body. So I, I'd like to just talk to you a little bit about First, the, the the physiological, you know, talk to me about the difference between what you felt sensationally pre-motherhood and then how you felt making music sensationally post-motherhood. Yeah, I think that um, like the experience of having, being pregnant and then having kids, um, giving birth to C-sections, um, you know, as, as young singers, um, I think much of what we do is somewhat intuitive. Um, singing as a, a beast is something that, uh, you know, like people, anybody can sing, even if it's terrible, um, you know, even if it's out of tune and even if it, it, it sounds like a, a herd of dying cats, you're still singing, like you're still, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, I, I hear from people who say, I love to sing. I'm so terrible at it, but I love to sing and, and I don't ever want anybody to hear it, but I sing in the shower and I sing in the car and it just feels so good. And that's the thing about singing. Like it just feels good. So it doesn't matter what it sounds like, but for those of us who have, um, who have gone into singing as a profession, um, obviously we, we, we must be pretty good at it or else like people are not going to hire us to do it. Um, and I think that that's like a, um, it's not like I popped out of the womb singing opera, but, um, it certainly for some reason or another uh, was kind of innately, intuitively a part of me. Um, and the, of course, you know, I went to Eastman School of Music for six years, got two degrees, worked with voice teachers over the years to perfect my technique and, and the, the functionality of my voice. Um, and so there's always improvements to be made and there's always discoveries to be made and, and you hone in on certain things, like maybe you have weaknesses here and there and you work on those things. But the fundamental act of singing is just part of you. Yeah. And when I was pregnant, it felt a little bit like I was on steroids the entire time um, until like the end, you know, where... I just felt like somebody blew a blue a balloon up inside of me. When you say you're, you felt like you were on steroids, does it mean like things were easy and like, uh, yeah, things, okay, like until really? until the last like month or so, I I felt like 
I didn't have to work hard at all to, I mean, it was like rearranging and stuff. And, and I kind of had, I was making lots of discoveries, but it, that even in and of itself, I was like, wow, this is really cool that even though I've got this person growing inside of me and my body is changing, like not even just every day, but every hour, it felt like I was, I was going through like a new physical change and that my voice could keep up with it. Um, and I could still do the thing, like the, the thing being reach high apps, you know, <laughs> like mm. I could still do it, um, even with all of the changes. And that was like really empowering to me as a pregnant person. And of course, by the end, I mean, I was, I was still singing queen when I was like almost eight and a half months pregnant. I was, I was at least eight, eight months pregnant. Um, and, uh, speaking of saying no, I, I mean, I was in, uh, I was singing at the Paralata Festival in Northern Spain and it's an outdoor venue. And I think it was like 115 degrees during the day. And at night it would like go down to 106. It was like one of those things, you know? And for any of you who have ever been pregnant, heat is not your friend (laughs) when you're pregnant. Oh my gosh, it was so uncomfortable. And so they're fitting me in this like long black gown and they're talking about these sleeves that they're going to put me in and everything. I'm like, yeah, no, this dress is not going to have sleeves. That's a big, that's a hard no for me. <laughs> I um, cannot believe you were singing in the heat. My goodness. Please continue, but I'm just going to like well, ruminate you know, on that for a and second. That, that was like my, my, my first pregnancy. And so I really, I wisened up for my second pregnancy because um, a little, and no, and like, literally nobody knows this because it never came to fruition, but, um, for the first time in my entire career, I hadn't accepted anything except Queens, um, for like part of like the, the first part of, um, like the fall season t- 2020 and into t- 2021. Um, and we all know what happened that season, um, and that's when I was planning on being pregnant with my son, Charlie. Uh, and then everything stopped. And so I ended up doing like a, a concertized Messiah. And I did one queen down in Palm Beach. Um, but other than that, like I, I just did like um, mocktail cocktail hours with various donors over Zoom and stuff. And I just was like pregnant and fat and happy. Um, for, for my, for my second pregnancy. So that actually, that was my, uh, COVID. I hate saying silver lining. Cause I think that that's a, almost feels like a derogatory term when so many people were suffering and dying, but you know, if there was one positive side to, um, the world shutdown for me, it was that I could actually, um, not have to go through you know, traveling the world and, and, um, being in front of people while I was pregnant and, and also postpartum because that whole thing that happened with Develt and Manuel Brook, um, that was me at nine months postpartum. Um, and I was already suffering with postpartum anxiety and depression. And that just kind of, actually it made me, it made me angry. It almost kind of snapped me out of it, but it also kind of sent me into a darker place. Um, which was not a good place to set me up for, for when the whole shutdown happened with COVID, because I know a lot of people really suffered with that. And I, I definitely was one of them over the summer. Um, like during the spring, I was, I was kind of too busy with, um, like moving out of my apartment and having a, still having, you know, a a very tiny toddler and, 
um, we were sort of like living with my parents and then living with Zach's parents. And then we were closing on our house and then we were doing all sorts of DIY remodeling of our house. And then when all of that slowed down, I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, I'm in a fit of despair. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's been a journey, definitely, uh, at least for me. And I think for a lot of people this mm. um, in this time. I want to just circle back to, you know, you've got, you've got these two big jobs, you know, you've got musician, you've got mom, and we know the folks at Devolt weren't necessarily supportive of that. But what I'd like to do is talk about the people that were in fact supportive of you during that time, talking about, you know, companies that have been accommodating or maybe some that weren't, if we, you know, we don't have to name them, that's okay. But there are companies out there that are willing to work with, with artists as people and support women as mothers and it seems like you've experienced a lot of that yeah you know I'm not going to throw any companies under the bus uh, <laughs> and actually um the I actually had a, quite a few good experiences I won't say great but good experiences um you know and by good experiences I mean that most of the companies that I worked for while I was pregnant they were like we're so happy you're here even though you're pregnant you know <laughs> Like, despite the fact that you're pregnant, we're happy that you're still doing this job. Um, And I wish that it were a little bit more like, we're so excited that we have the opportunity to have a pregnant person here because like that is diversity on on one level. Um, And that's not exactly what I experienced, but uh, I do know um, a couple of my... uh, friend slash colleagues Aaron Morley and Julie Fuchs um they were both pregnant at the same time that I was and both of them had some pretty bad experiences so I'm I feel really fortunate um and again I won't throw those companies that they were with under the bus because I don't think that's a, a kind thing to do but um they're they're pretty common knowledge uh, within the opera business anyway it's uh, not not uh hard to dig up those stories um but I feel I feel good that um, that I I didn't have to at least deal with situations like that. Uh, I will say that um, I have to give a shout out to Francesca Zambello at WNO because, um, of course, I was I was headed back to WNO to do um, Conaconda and there in in her Candide, which I had premiered that production at Glimmerglass a couple of years beforehand. Loved the production, loved the experience. Couldn't wait to do it again. I was five months pregnant. And I'm five feet tall for anybody who doesn't know that tidbit of information. Everybody thinks that I'm very tall. More diversity. (laughs) You're a short queen. (laughs) Like no one, no one recognizes me when I come off stage because they all think that I'm like five ten or something and I'm five feet tall. Um, But my husband is six, six. He is a full 18 inches taller than me. (laughs) And so I carry giant, giant babies in my tiny little body. And so at five months pregnant, I looked like some people do at nine months pregnant. I was like fully (laughs) popped, 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 popped. And, um, you know, I, I was feeling a little concerned just about the way that I looked because of the role and, you know, the, the production didn't really allow for that. Um, but the great thing was, is that you know, she kept, <laughs> Francesca kept saying to me, I want you to, I want you to know that it has nothing to do with the fact that you look like a pregnant Kunagunda because we could work that in. 
we could totally work this. But you know what the set is like. You know, you know what this show is. And she just was really concerned for my safety. And uh, I have to say that it was, it, I kind of fought it at first um, because I just was so excited to revisit that production. And then, you know, we just, we had a really good conversation about it. And um, the, I mean, the other person who was advocating for me, even when I wasn't, was Denise Graves. She was um, right there, you know, in, in rehearsals and seeing what I was doing. And um, after I finally did pull out of the, the production, uh, and uh, by the way, treated really well. Francesca was like, I'm going to pay your entire contract. Like, no questions asked. I'm just going to pay your entire contract. Go and be, enjoy these six weeks that you would have been working here. Rest, enjoy yourself, do some yoga, you know, <laughs> just take care of yourself. Um, and after I did finally pull out of um, the production, I left pretty abruptly um, and uh, didn't go back to any more rehearsals because like, why, why go back? And Denise actually called my cell phone somehow you know got my cell phone number called my cell phone and left this lovely message saying um you know i was in a position once just like you and i wish that i had made the decision that you have made um and that's all she said but man that that support and like hearing that affirmation for the decision that i made really really touched me well I want to say that uh, Emily Pogorelts, who uh, stepped in for you, um, is a friend of the show, and um, I didn't know the other side of the story. So it's actually great to yeah. connect those dots and to have like, uh, yeah, the other side, which is, um, I didn't, I, I know that Francesca Zabella was an incredible uh, intendant, but um, that's 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 awesome. And Denise Graves, we want her on the show too. So we stand. Yeah. <laughs> Let's take a pause right now and uh, just enjoy a little bit of your brand new album uh, with uh, Il Pomodoro. This is the accompagnato from one of my favorite cantatas, uh, Armida Abbandonata. Everybody knows how much I love Handel, and I am crazy about this album. Um, Armida Abandonata is one of my favorite cantatas, and A Crudel is uh, like my personal anthem. <laughs> um, but when I was listening to this album, I was just, I had that same reluctance that I did years ago when I went to go hear your, your Mass in C minor, that, okay, here is an opera singer can she bring it down to sing this intimate cantata? And the answer is actually yes and no. You do bring your voice down and you do the most elegant, you know, instrumental flights of coloratura and you 
lay off the vibrato and you lean into dissonances, all the stuff that us early music people are looking for. But just like in that moment, in that accompaniato, you're like, you know what, this is opera actually. <laughs> so here's here's some drama for you, you know? And it makes it, it so, it makes it so dramatic with it. Uh, I love Handel, but I mean, you know, uh, there's this weird, I think we're in a really cool time for, for Handel singing because we are deciding. Oh my gosh, we're going to get so geeky with you here. Okay, let's do it. Yes, Tell me, I, go for it, go for it. Oh Shoot. my God, like I, I could not agree with you more with this time being like extra special for Handel. Um, and I'll start out by saying, uh, randomly, um, my husband and I were given a, a, an antique book. I mean, it's it's not like a new book or anything. It was written in the 1950s and um, like, it's like an opera book, you know, like about composers and about styles and genres of opera. And uh, actually, maybe it's just like all about classical music. Um, and the part about Handel is like, it talks all about his oratorios and stuff. And then, and then like the last sentence, it says something like, oh, and by the way, he also wrote some operas, but they've all been forgotten in the repertory. <laughs> Like they don't exist, you know, <laughs> and it's so, Lost. it's so funny because now it's like you're like I feel like half of my career has been handled, and I'm like this book could not be more wrong. It just was like it was going through a little hiatus during that time, yeah. and it wasn't popular, and that's okay. Um, but here's the thing, like I really honestly think that um, the equivalent to what handle is to this time period is sort of like what the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, to some extent, was to bel canto. Um, you know, all the great singers of that of that time, Maria Callas, um, Beverly Caballé, Soap, yeah. Caballé, Pavarotti. Um, Shirley Barrett. <laughs> I mean, all of them, they like brought uh, Sutherland, you know, they, they all brought bel canto to a new level. And the cadenzas that they wrote and started singing or had written for them, you know, like some of them didn't write them, but they're all, they were all theirs mm -hmm. and we're still singing them. You know, like you can't, you can hardly improve on that. Like I, I wrote my own cadenza for my debut singing Lucia and it's like, I, I love it only because it calls, like I borrowed things from the stills and I borrowed things from the Sutherland. And then I brought in like echoes of other parts of the opera that I really like and I just got creative with it. But it's, it's special to me, but like, nobody else is going to think it's better than what they sang you know mm -hmm. because like you can't improve upon what they did but in Handel we have a unique opportunity here as singers those of us who who sing early music because there isn't any standard like repertory of cadenzas or ornaments and I have always had like such joy and taken such pride in writing my own ornaments and cadenzas um and I feel like if we do it right the singers of today who are singing Handel, people in another 50 years are going to be singing our cadenzas that we yeah. wrote now for Handel because like all this all this Handel repertoire is really coming into its own right now. Well, let's also acknowledge that you are you made this album with one of the sexiest bands that's recording right now in Pomodoro. Right? Uh, They're so awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's such a cool band and um, they really make a meal out of all of the moments and the continuo is always sounding so fresh and they get a little aggressive on their downbeats and it feels like oh yeah is like, it gets dirty right yeah it gets exactly dirty. yeah but and it's this one's a good way 
Yeah, and speaking this, of sexy, like this, this, the the whole circumstance of recording this was the sexiest thing. We were all like living at this monastery in northern Italy, and the whole thing was the whole building was shrouded in fog basically the entire time we were there. Um, and so it was a little bit like a scene from The Others with Nicole Kidman. Yeah. <laughs> and my husband and my daughter are like, you know, wandering around the dark, abandoned hallways of this monastery. <laughs> and we're, we're recording this incredibly spooky and ethereal and dramatic music. It was it was really kind of perfect. Well, the recording is Armida Abandonata and the Apollo e Daphne duet cantata uh, with Il Pomodoro on the Pentatone label. Uh, you can listen to it on Spotify and other places. Um, and you hinted at the fact that you have a husband who's a singer. Uh, so we want to talk really briefly about uh, an opportunity to hear both of you in concert for a good cause. Yeah, um, foodoflove.org or go to either of our um, social media platforms, Instagram or, or Facebook. Um, we're primarily raising money through Facebook and Instagram um, because all, all of the credit card fees are waived. So it's a, it's a great bang for your buck. Um, but you can also uh, donate directly. Um, we recorded a concert last May at a beautiful art museum called the Michener in Doylestown, PA, which is um, where my husband was raised. Um, and we just did like favorite things. You know, we kind of like threw this thing together because we were both really distraught about what was happening in Ukraine. And um, at the time we were uh, sort of thinking, okay, we're going to do this for the refugees. But then we started just at that time, it was like the, the news was starting to turn about um, like what the war was doing to the rest of the world and specifically um, to uh, like at that time, it was the Horn of Africa that was like really missing out on a lot of grain imports. And um, so this, the threat of starvation worldwide has since then escalated to insane heights um, and so we decided to make, once we, once we were putting this on film and, and, um, thinking about streaming, we decided to, uh, benefit the UN world food program. So please, uh, download it and, and please donate, um, whatever you can. We, you said uh, a little bit earlier that you're about to go five months with your kids in tow, um, to, well, I know you're coming to Chicago to sing, uh, your, uh, Countess Adele in Contori with Larry Brownlee. I'm very excited yeah. to hear you sing En Poix La Tristesse, one of my favorite <laughs> all-time arias. Uh, and then to get into a three-way with uh, Larry Brownlee and Kaylee Decker. And we know that you're not monogamous, so <laughs> that's going to be great for your relationship. Um, but what I, and we know that your season, this five-month stretch you're about to do, ends with uh, the new magic flute that they're building uh, for Larry to sing... Uh, Tamino in so it's like yeah it's like starting a Larry and ending and Katie, a Larry and Katie season. <laughs> yeah uh what do you have in between queens yeah so I'm super excited about this uh this contourie in Chicago um I've really been looking forward to it um and and it's not just Larry that I'm excited to work with I mean the, the rest of the cast as well but uh super excited to work again with Enrique Mazzola um, because we did Orfeo's Enfer in um, the Salzburg Festival, which is out was on it, DVD. Was it Hilarious, that right? Orfe? Was it the Manuel Brug Orfe? Yes, it was uh, that one. Jerk. Indeed. <laughs> I know. Um, 
yeah and so like we'll we'll do that and then we um that's, yeah it's like my my kids will be with me and my husband will be with me the entire time my parents are even even joining our travels for some of the time um so it's a big family event and uh so then we all go to berlin and i will make a trip down to dresden to make my debut singing queen at the semperoper and then back to berlin to uh finally do the four heroines and Tales of Hoffman. Um, and the reason I say finally is because I was actually supposed to premiere that production at Deutsche Oper in 2018, but instead I had my first baby. So it was a pretty good, it was a pretty good reason to cancel. Yeah. Um, but I am, I'm so happy that Christoph Seufler, um has invited me back to, to finally do that production because I feel like doing all of those heroines is like going to be the most fulfilling challenge of, of my career thus far. Very jealous for everybody who gets to hear this uh, four queen uh, four four heroines. It's one of my favorite operas of all time. You do all the music that I I want to hear. So okay. So now <laughs> then I hear London, Nice, and Antwerp. Yeah, and then London. I'm 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 making my also finally I'm making my Covent Garden debut singing queen, um, which I had to cancel last season because I had my second baby. Um, so all of these debuts that were supposed to happen are are finally kind of coming back to me this season, which is fun. Um, and then I'll go to Nice and sing a Lucia, and I'm really looking forward to spending some time in the south of France in the early spring, because there's just nothing better than that, um, weather-wise, climate-wise. Um, and then I do, I just added to my season, I don't even think, I don't even think that I've advertised this yet, but um, I just added a recital in Antwerp in Belgium, um, where I'm going to sing some Poulenc, and I think... So it's not official, but you guys are hearing it first. I think for the first time, I'm going to learn uh, Strauss's four last songs. Oh, wow. So I think <gasps> yeah, that heard be... it here first, Belgian. Yeah, exciting. You did. You did. Um, yeah, and then a, a couple more uh, queens in Dresden and, um, and then finally home for a few weeks before I start rehearsals um, at the Met for... Their new production, I put in quotations because I've done it twice already, the McBurney in <laughs> France. <laughs> Once when I was, oh, well, the first time that I did it in 2014, that was the recording that you played at the very beginning. Um, and that was my first experience with that production and with Simon himself, who he's, he is an interesting mind. Um, and I think that the production is really cool. I, I mean, it's like a psychological thriller. Um, and I really recommend it, but what I don't recommend is bringing your kids. Mm. And I say mm -hmm. that because the production, the Julie Tamor that's at the, the Met right now is so kid friendly. Mm -hmm. And, um, Peter Galb actually called my dressing room before one of our performances last season. And, you know, just, you know, told me toy, toy, toy for my performance and stuff. And, uh, he, he mentioned that he was excited that I was going to be back to do the new production next season. And. I said, yeah, so listen, um, I'm familiar with it, like very, very familiar with it. And I feel a little bit like you need to put a disclaimer out like in the New York Times or something saying that this is a totally different beast Not than yeah. the Julie Taymor. Yeah. <laughs> He's no. like, okay, noted, duly noted. Thank you. They've been, they've been billing that as like the family show. So be careful. Right. So good warning. Right. Exactly, exactly. The second time that I did that production, I was, uh, was like seven and a half months pregnant with my daughter. So I, I was actually a little grateful for the wheelchair at that point. 
Yeah, because you're like an old lady in that one, right? Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the whole second aria, I'm okay. like tearing around, the, ripping up the stage in a wheelchair. <laughs> well, Catherine Lewick, it's been so great to meet you this way. And I'm so looking forward, we're both looking forward to hearing you in the Contori coming up in Chicago. Uh, well, thank, you for, thank you for being an opera box score. Absolutely. My pleasure. Anytime, guys. <laughs> From her 2013, I want to say, appearance at in the Operalia competition, um, singing Lucia de Lammermoor and adding a crazy bonus high note there at the end. I, think, I guess it's a high E that she tacks A role on. that doesn't have enough high notes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a fantastic singer. Uh, thank you, Ashley, for uh, taking time to join me on that for that conversation. Again, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. You click follow Apple Podcasts. Just hit the plus sign. Quick fantasy football update before we get into the two-minute drill. So throughout Philadelphia's Fantasy Football League, there's two divisions, the Grand Opera Division and the Chamber Opera Division. Your Mm. OBS team is currently number one in the Chamber Opera Division and number two overall, second only to general manager of Opera Philadelphia, David Devan. I feel really good about this season. Tobias and I have an extremely strong start. And how fabulous would it be if we could win the whole damn thing and beat everybody uh, out in Philadelphia? Take it from Larry. Take so, that belt just, out yeah, of his... Give me that. Give me that trophy. <laughs> Two-minute drill. Let's do it. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Conductor Daniel Barenboim announced that he will be withdrawing from some of his performing activities, especially conducting engagements for the coming months, following his diagnosis with a serious neurological condition. We wish the maestro a speedy recovery. Belarusian baritone Ilya Silchuko has been forced to leave his country after speaking out against dictator Alexander Lukashenko. His public opposition to Lukashenko's fraudulent re-election in 2020 led to his firing from the Belarus National Opera, his blacklisting, and even threats from the police against his wife and family. Said Silchuko, quote, I was paid well in Belarus and I had all the benefits from that. Yes, they pay me, but they don't own me. As the war in Ukraine continues to escalate, more performers are canceling their planned performances in Russia. According to Tagesspiegel, after the announcement of a Tristan und Isolde in Moscow, three of its cast members distanced themselves from the commitment, tenors Andrea Schager and Torsten Kerl, and baritone Matthias Gerner. Carrie Lynn Wilson, founder of the Ukrainian Freedom Orchestra, an ensemble created as a statement of defiance against Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, recently revealed that when she was engaged to conduct a run of Tosca this fall in Buenos Aires, 
she noted that Anna Netrebko was listed to sing two of the performances. Wilson is quoted as saying to the Argentine Opera House, I'm sorry, I can't perform with Miss Netrebko. And the house replied, don't worry, she's bringing her own conductor. <laughs> Typical. Tenor Javier Camarena asserts that the Mexican ranchera genre has been deeply influenced by Italian opera. It turns out during the 19th century, Italian opera was very popular in Mexico when companies traveled there to perform operas by the likes of Donizetti and Bellini. I can imagine Italians coming to Mexico and saying, yeah, listen to me singing O Sole Mio, says Camarena. And I can imagine Mexicans, the composer, saying, okay, so let's sing our music like that. The Asian Opera Alliance, here we're grouping all of our ethnic stories. The Asian Opera Alliance has announced <laughs> Melody Chang Heaton as its first ever executive director. In her new role, the mezzo-soprano and director of marketing at Inland Northwest Opera will organize and monitor daily activities and provide development planning. Comprised of Asian identifying industry professionals, the Asian Opera Alliance aims to provide broader equity and uplift Asian representation in opera. The New York Times reports that conductor Christian Tielemann did not respond to Peter Gelb's text regarding a production in 2025. The Maria Manetti Schrem general manager said, quote, Tielemann would be treated like operatic royalty at the Met, adding, I texted Tielemann earlier this year and never got a reply. Hmm. Jonas Kaufmann has been awarded the Bayerischer Verfassungsorden for his outstanding contribution to cultural life in Bavaria. That's along with busty beer maidens and big ass pretzels. <laughs> hey, now you can add the foremost interpreter of All I Fand for Christmas ist du. <laughs> and a corresponding German diva alert. Earlier today, Diana Damrau has announced her Christmas album, My Christmas, or Meine Weihnachten, to be released on <laughs> November 4th. Commence countdown for everyone who can't get enough of her Witch of the Black Forest rendition of Part of Your World. <laughs> That's a very specific audience you're talking to. <laughs> After a two-year postponement, Minnesota Opera finally gave the world premiere of Edward Tulane by Paula Prestini and libretto by Mark Campbell. It's the first work by a woman to be commissioned by Minnesota Opera and was very much set to open in 2020, conducted by friend of the show Lydia Yankovskaya, who has returned to the project starring Jack Swanson, Brian Vu, and Zulimar Lopez Hernandez. In trade news, Opera Australia Artistic Director Lyndon Terracini has announced he is quitting imminently, joining a parade of recent departures from the troubled company. Terracini, who has helmed Opera Australia for 13 years and was set to depart when his contract ends in 2023, abruptly announced his resignation last week, saying he was quitting, quote, to get on with the next phase of my life, to pursue new adventures, and enable the transition of my successor. Everyone's favorite segment now, it's Rashvelishvili Watch, on behalf of Ashley Hardgrave. The Metropolitan Opera has announced that Anita Rashvelishvili will be replaced by Yulia Matochkina, in the role of Princess Eboli in the upcoming Don Carlo. Matochtikina made her Met debut at the Met in Rigoletto last season, and last summer she performed in productions of Samson and Delilah and Don Carlo at the Marinsky Theater under Valery Gergiev. <gasps> Opera Naples has postponed some of its upcoming performances due to significant damage caused by Hurricane Ian. According to the company, their home, the Wang Opera Center, was flooded by two to three feet of storm surge water. And on this day, October 10th in 1727, it was the first performance of George Friedrich Handel's coronation anthems at the Westminster Abbey for the coronation of King George II. In 1743, it was the first performance of Johann Adolf Hasse's Antigono. 
1813 saw the birth of a composer named Giuseppe Verdi. I've heard of him. In 1843, the first performance <laughs> of Gaetano Donizetti's Maria di Rohan in Vienna. In 1919, another Viennese premiere, it was Richard Strauss's Die Frau ohne Schatten. In 1921, Turkish soprano Leila Genger was born in Istanbul. In 1931, William Walton's Belshazzar's Feast, which is an oratorio, premiered at the Leeds Festival in London. In 1935, it was the first performance of George Gershwin, George and Ira Gershwin's Porgy and Bess at the Alvin Theater. In 1943, a radio opera called Barbe Bleu by Jacques Hibert premiered from the Lausanne radio station. I guess that's what they're called. And happy birthday to the great Jamaican bass Willard White, born this day in 1946. And that's your two-minute drill. That was the birthday girl herself, Leila Genger, singing the music of the birthday boy, Giuseppe Verde, in a performance of Macbeth from Palermo with Vittorio Gui conducting. It is, of course, a pirate recording, since uh, <laughs> almost all reco- ex- extant recordings of Genger are. <laughs> but she sounds great there. We have the Queen of the Queen of the Knights and the Queen of Pirates on the same show today. Not to be confused with Stephanie J. Block in The Pirate Queen, a musical no one needs to see. (laughs) (laughs) Willard White is, like, just so awesome. He really is. He's just, yeah. I think it's really fascinating how uh, Willard White and uh, 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 Porgy and Bess, you know, share the same sort of date because he, of course, had that iconic recording back in the 70s. Uh, which really kind of brought it back, brought the whole opera back uh, from partial obscurity. Um, and I, I just love listening to anything he does. He's so great. Wow, you made a connection that I didn't realize. We have Genger as the foremost radio interpreter and White as a foremost Porgy. Uh, <laughs> foremost there's, Porgy. Yeah, there's yes, something, that's what he has on his LinkedIn page. There's something there, you know. <laughs> Uh, guys, sorry. Hang on a second. Um, Peter Gelb is texting me, actually. <laughs> oh, oh, what? Uh, just don't, oh, don't no. answer. No, no, never. It was Peter Sagal. Actually, it's cool. <laughs> I, I don't uh, like, I am not on this show to do conjecture and hearsay and gossip. That's that's, that's not what I do. That that's what I'm here for. <laughs> that's why we have all you clowns. But like, the, seriously, the old grade lady, the New York Times is writing about like a text between Gelb and In fairness, that wasn't the, the 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 overall thrust of the article. If you read it, it's it's more talking about how Tilaman is leaving his current position. Um, uh, uh, well, he, he's he's a famously kind of uh, uh, not reclusive is the right word, but he tends to like focus a lot and doesn't do a lot outside of his main gigs. And so there's a lot of speculation now that he might be free for other projects, including at the Met. Everyone's go- coming after him saying, hey, you want to conduct my symphony? You want to conduct my opera? And he's just kind of being like, I'll do whatever I want. 
But I just love the image of like Peter Gelb, like texting you up at two in the morning to Christian Telemann in hopes of getting him on board for a production. Uh, but he's, he's a he's a great conductor. I would, I would love to see something at the Met. So what really made me go eyes emoji in that article was the speculation that he's being courted to take over from Muti at CSO. And yeah. I mean, <laughs> what could go wrong about putting another autocratic old school direct <laughs> music director into the I know. That he same not, spot. He like, have, come on. He doesn't have a great uh reputation as being like collaborative or particularly friendly guy. <laughs> yeah. He's very, very old school. And and uh I mean speaking of old school uh conductors, uh I, I, I am like really saddened to hear the news about Daniel Baron Boehm. Yeah. Um uh Obviously, you know, a, a, another great conductor, great performer, um, uh, doesn't necessarily have the, the nicest reputation as a collaborator, but um, but certainly um, that's not a good sign. He's when been you get sort of like yeah. serious, you know. Well, his he's pushing 80. Actually, his 80th birthday is coming yeah. up next month. Yeah. And uh, but he's been uh, he's been canceling more and more engagements and clearly whatever is going on seems to be mounting so um hopefully he can pull through it um but uh we'll see what happens but michael tilson thomas seems to be persevering and we thought that we were on mtt watch yeah, so that's you know. true that's yeah true. yeah that's true i'm so glad that edward tulane has finally made it to this stage first of all it's just a brilliant book I, I cannot recommend the book highly enough if you want to see me ugly cry then just watch me read that book Obviously, we we all do want to see you ugly cry. So I'm I'm glad you told us. It's that's sort know, of my kink is actually. great <laughs> composer Mark Campbell on the libretto, which is which is awesome. Lydia Yankovska conducting. I, I cannot wait for this show to to go somewhere else. I heard Jack Swanson at Santa Fe this year. He is real good. That is a bel canto tenor. That's it's a great great instrument. So he's in the title role. Yes. Well, I don't know. I haven't seen it, but sure. Sounds like he would be. So. Well, I, I would certainly hope he's playing the main part. I also don't get the insanity that has hit Opera Australia. First of all, if it didn't have such a iconic opera house, how much would we care about Opera Australia? I mean, I think you. I think that's kind of the point, <laughs> is that they have they have a landmark that has more fame than anything that they'd actually do as a company it's like it's like being a football team in like a really iconic stadium but not being like that great of a football team it really reminds me of a story that was actually in the new york times we didn't cover it because uh it's a it's a symphony exclusive story i believe it's anthony anthony tomasini uh, reflecting on going to the uh, New York Phil and, of course, the uh, the transition from the old to the new hall there and instantly being bedeviled by acoustics um, and just how it, how the acoustic problems shaped the entire uh, feel of the orchestra, the, the kind of repertoire that worked and didn't and, like, you know, something they were just locked into for such a long time. And I think it's a similar problem with, with Sydney because, you know, one of the problems with that house is that because it's such a weird shape uh, and it wasn't designed with acoustics in mind, it was designed in that era of, of big, grand spaces, um, 
uh, when mics were still the norm in pretty much every genre outside of classical music. Um, and you really suffer a lot in those cases. But at the same time, you can't do that many improvements because that's why people are coming. That's why people are going. That's what they, they associate it with. And it's it's really interesting to see how like a single choice like that made decades ago can affect the whole There's art There's nothing form. wrong with a bit of house clear, right? So, so Terracini's departure is part of you know this kind of mass exodus right so the chairman of opera australia left uh the technical director the marketing boss the chief executive mm -hmm. they've all been replaced now i mean in sports you you see this as a new opportunity you see this as like the time to yeah, kind of build absolutely. a new franchise and and maybe they're they're panicking down under but um i think there's actually a lot of potential there uh before we go to good call bad call since it sort of is a good call for all of us um matt could you explain uh, what you were talking about with the Vich of the Black Forest. So everyone who has not heard it before does need to go to YouTube right this very minute. We will even provide a link for you in our show notes to listen to Deanna Damrell's um, Broadway and Operetta album, I think it's on, uh, where she does Little Mermaid in German. It's called Ein Mensch zu sein. And um, the vocal choices are, let's say, unidiomatic. <laughs> Let us wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call is how we're going to wrap it up this week. As every week, Oliver Camacho. Well, speaking of fantastic recordings uh, that we uh, already have, uh, Lizette Oropesa's new album just dropped, uh, French Bel Canto Aria. So it's the Standard bel canto composers, but when they were in Paris, so we get some French Donizetti, some French Rossini, and it's Lizette. So uh, I'm so glad to see her um, continuing to make recordings while she's in her prime on the Pentatone label, which is the same label that Catherine Lewick's album that we sampled is on Pentatone, uh, where Catherine Lewick sings Handel. Matt Cummings. Uh, we also talked a good about good bit about conductors in this episode and there is another feature that didn't quite make it into our rundown but everyone should definitely check out it's in the times about natalie stutzmann and her new gig at the atlanta symphony as they prepare for her to become the first female music director there um the the piece is really in depth it talks a lot about just how comprehensive she is as a musician and the way that she's learned to listen to music in all these different ways and puts that to work as a singer and what the orchestra thinks about working with her. Like, really terrific stuff. I highly recommend checking this out. Weston Williams. I have a bad call at the universe for uh, uh, for making go. me not see Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, let, me, let me break this down for you. I had tickets uh, for, like, uh, the first week. Had to move them. Uh, and then I came up on close to that second date that I moved it, had to move it again for reasons I can't get into here. And then finally, on the very la final performance, I was like, okay, now's the time. I can finally see Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, I went to the red line and all trains were stopped from uh, Howard to Belmont, which is not good if you live where I live in Chicago. Uh, so then I had to wait for a shuttle. The shuttle was completely full. Missed the shuttle. I got on a different bus, went the wrong direction accidentally, uh, hit rush hour traffic, showed uh, up 10 minutes late, had to watch yeah, Act 1 yeah. on TV in the basement. <laughs> So uh, the second half I enjoyed, um, but uh, apparently the universe does not want me to see Fiddler on the Roof. A good call for whoever was sitting behind you, though. 
Yeah, exactly. True, true. <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. Click follow. Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Going to get the OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, and our guest, Catherine Lewick, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you sing Mozart, but make it dirty. We're back with an all-new show next week, plus you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and seven fewer sleeps until the Deanna Damrau Christmas album drops. Join us.